hunt, which means seeking out the adversary, surveil, which means probing the foreign disinformation systems to identify the bad actors and the details of the software they use, expose, which means releasing the details of disinformation operations, including the methods, the campaigns, and maybe personnel. And then finally is disable. All four levels are different, but expose, that's a useful tool because it can be exposed without the fingerprints of the U.S. government. I'm Quinta Jurecic, and this is The Lawfare Podcast, December 3rd, 2020. It's another episode of our Arbiters of Truth series on platforms and disinformation. This time, we turned the tables a bit. Instead of co-hosting, Alina Polyakova took a turn in the guest seat, alongside Ambassador Daniel Fried, the former U.S. ambassador to Poland, and the Weiser Family Distinguished Fellow at the Atlantic Council. They have a new paper out on democratic offense against disinformation, published by the Atlantic Council and the Center for European Policy Analysis. The two have written previously on how democracies can defend themselves against disinformation and misinformation from abroad. But this time, they've turned their attention to what it would mean for democracies to take the initiative against foreign purveyors of disinformation rather than just playing defense. So how effective are democracies at countering disinformation? What tools are available if they want to play offense? And is it even possible to do so without borrowing tactics from the same authoritarian regimes that democracies seek to counter? It's the Lawfare Podcast, December 3rd. Can democracies play offense on disinformation? Ambassador Fried, Alina, welcome to the show. Ambassador Fried, it's great to have you on. Uh, Alina, we're usually co-hosting together, so it's exciting to ask you some questions for a change. So the two of you have a new report out on, on what you call democratic offense against disinformation, which is part of the series you've written on how democracies should think about and build resilience against the threat posed by mis- and disinformation. I wanted to start at the beginning and sort of set the scene. Can you sketch out for our listeners your understanding of what kind of danger disinformation poses to democracies today, and more specifically, where you understand that danger as coming from? Thanks, Quinta. I can start, and I'm sure my my co-author, Ambassador Fried, will chime in. You know, as you said, this paper is really part of a multi-year effort at this point. And we started off with this notion that, you know, four years ago, when we first started even thinking about doing this series, we were really kind of admiring the problem, as Ambassador Fried often says, meaning we have become aware, certainly in the United States, that disinformation because of the Russian election interference in 2016 was a problem that we had to think about in the United States. And it wasn't something that was just relegated to you know, far-flung countries where Russia has strategic interests like Ukraine or Georgia or you know the Baltic states. And we were really at a loss um, as a society, as a government at the time, and not just the United States, but all Western governments, because we had never really had to think about this kind of foreign malign influence, as we call it today. Now, fast forward to where we are today, we had written two papers that were basically policy roadmaps for a U.S. administration, if it chose to use them, to really push back and build deterrence and build resilience 
against foreign state-sponsored disinformation. I just want to be clear that that's what we're focusing on in these papers, because at the time we first started thinking about this foreign disinformation from Russia, now from China and others as well, that was really a problem. Clearly, the problem set has changed. We can talk about how it's changed, obviously. But I think the threat remains the same, which is why this paper, Democratic Offense Against Disinformation, takes a very different view. And it basically says, look, the reality is that we are all becoming very well aware that a society that is susceptible to disinformation, especially by foreign state actors, is a society that is showing vulnerabilities and cracks in its democratic resilience. And from that perspective, disinformation continues to pose what I think is an existential threat to democracies um, in the West and elsewhere. And the reality is that we have been playing this kind of whack-a-mole game in the disinformation response arena, and we really need to get ahead of it. And to get ahead of it, we have to get on the offense. And that's really what this paper is about. The disinformation problem is big because it now is clear it involves domestic sources of disinformation. Now, as an American, it's rather horrific to have to acknowledge that the White House has been a source of disinformation in the 2020 national elections, claiming all kinds of things that aren't true. So domestic disinformation is a problem. But we went after foreign disinformation because the tools to deal with it are stronger and the threat is slightly different. Foreign disinformation seeks to use various tools to exacerbate existing divisions, but it can be fought more easily because foreigners can be exposed in their disguise if they come across, try to come across as American. And foreign sources of disinformation are apt to be more, more vulnerable to some of the tools we have. So when we came up with a list of defensive measures, it included private, let's say, troll hunters and bot sleuths, people who could identify foreign disinformation campaigns and expose it. And we're a lot better off than we were. We also suggested that over time, as societies grew more sophisticated about what appeared online, people would start to differentiate between the real thing and fake things. Now, that turns out to be pretty complicated because there are an awful lot of people in the United States, it turns out, who believe just complete nonsense, like QAnon stuff. But over time, history suggests societies will become more sophisticated at filtering out good from bad. Disinformation is not new. It's been a law around as long as the printing press. The medium changes. So it used to be pamphlets that were fake. Then cheap newspapers, daily newspapers that were sensationalist and largely fake, yellow journalism, so-called. Now it's the internet. Societies will get more sophisticated about differentiating, but defense can 
help mitigate some of the damage while societies are getting their act together. And the final thing we touched on on the defense side uh, in our second paper was regulation. Now, that sounds scary, right? Regulating the internet sounds terrible. It sounds like a violation of free speech, but it isn't necessarily. It can be, and we argued this strongly in our, in our second paper, it's not content control we're talking about. It's transparency and authenticity, by which we meant this. If you say that you're Bob from Boise, you should be Bob from Boise and not Ivan from the Russian internet troll farm in St. Petersburg. And so there, there may be ways to regulate authenticity online and working and even pushing the social media companies to clean up their act. Now, all of this is being considered by the Europeans who are at a more, somewhat more advanced stage than the U.S. government, frankly, because President Trump saw disinformation in, through a domestic partisan context, and he just didn't do enough to fight it. And we know this because good people in the Trump administration used to say privately they were unable to do all they would like to do because of pressure from the White House. So that's the defense side. And the paper covers the defense side, but just as Alina pointed out, it also pivots and talks about what we can do on offense against foreign sources of disinformation, how you take the fight to them, how you go after them, and not just directly. There are all kinds of, of different ways to do it, and we can get into that later. But that sort of sums up where we were. Last thought, as societies become more sophisticated at differentiating between the real thing and disinformation, and as social media companies clean up their act, and maybe as regulation enforces standards of authenticity, we will get a handle on disinformation slowly. But that's not enough. We need, because the Russians and other governments are going to be after us, we need to take the fight to them. You give a what you call a report card at the beginning of the paper as to how societies have been doing in these necessary efforts to defend against disinformation. You have some reasons for optimism and some reasons why we're perhaps not doing as well as we should be. Would you be able to just give our listeners an overview of what your view is of how things have been going over the last few years? Yeah, so there's a lot to cover there because as we were writing this paper and all and the other two papers, it was hard to know when to stop just because things tend to move so quickly. You know, Twitter, Facebook put out new policies like almost on a weekly basis, if not more often, certainly lead up to the U.S. elections. Um, they were very active. So it's hard to really uh, have a static document that's capturing a really dynamic environment. But I think to sum it all up, you know, there's there's a lot of good news. Um, the good news is that certainly over the last four years, what we've started to see is a sort of emerging whole of society approach. What that means is that now there's you know a huge industry, which is why we do disinfocast podcasts sometimes. There's a huge industry of research, both private and nonprofit, that focuses on identifying disinformation networks on social media platforms. On the private sector side, the platforms themselves 
have had a lot of pressure, obviously, from various governments, from users to do more to contain, identify, and then in some cases take down various disinformation networks that they identify from state actors. And companies have been working much more closely with researchers than they ever did before, which is also new and also great news. And then governments have been taking you know, specific actions, you know, but that's been more of a mixed report kind. This is where the mixed mixed reviews come in. Uh, as uh, Ambassador Fried mentioned in his uh, earlier remarks, you know, Europe took the lead, at least on the regulatory side, in at least trying out through a sort of trial and error different kinds of policies to try to curb false and misleading content. I think the jury is still out on whether things like Germany's Nets uh, de Gay Law, as it's called, uh, which basically allows individuals to report what they see as false or misleading content, and then the platforms are obliged to take it down or potentially be fined some significant amounts of money. Um, sometimes that has to be adjudicated through the courts. So the, the jury is really still out whether efforts like this are really effective or not. But that is to say that, you know, at least at the EU level, Brussels, you know, they put out a voluntary code of conduct. All the companies signed up to the voluntary code of conduct, which means they provide reports to the EU and the European Commission on what they're doing to curb disinformation on their platforms. Now there is a democracy action plan that the EU is unveiling, at least um, as we're recording this conversation, had not unveiled, but may unveil by the time this comes out, that's probably going to canonize and regulate and impose actual an actual policy mandate to, for these kinds of efforts to not be voluntary anymore. So there's been a whole slew of efforts. And a lot of those efforts, the governmental side, have been happening in Europe. You know, in the U.S., however, because of the partisanship that this, unfortunately, this issue has fallen into, and because of the Trump White House that kind of refused to even acknowledge that there was a problem in the first place, we've had a very divisive Congress uh, where we haven't seen a single piece of legislation pass the U.S. Congress that addresses disinformation specifically. You know, one thing that Congress did do was kind of create or expand the mandate of the Global Engagement Center, the State Department. Uh, but of course, the problem with that has been that there's been uh, no effort to do anything about domestic disinformation issues. And there have been some good attempts, you know, CISA, uh, the Cyber Infrastructure Security Agency, did put out some good kind of public service announcements um, about disinformation online. But we haven't really had a whole of government approach in the United States and that's really been the key problem here. And in our first two papers, we had very specific recommendations for what the U.S. government could do if they wanted to take this problem seriously. So our hope, of course, is that the Biden administration will take this problem seriously and will maybe take some of the advice we've given there as a way to, to move forward. But I think it's been a very mixed report card because of that. And because, you know, there's still so much more that I think companies need to do to really get ahead of this problem in a real way. Uh, look, I, I agree with Alina, but I'll put it a little more brutally. The United States government under Trump was underperforming because he regarded charges of disinformation and action against disinformation as some kind of partisan attack on him. Alina's right to, to flag CISA, you know, the, the infrastructure 
and Cybersecurity Agency, they did fabulous work. And their Trump administration political appointee, Chris Krebs, was fired for having done such good work. That's a travesty. And I have no doubt the Biden administration is going to do a lot better. But that's a problem. If people in the Trump administration have to work under the radar on a critical problem of this to avoid getting in trouble with the White House, we're not going to get a lot done. So we have been underperforming for years. That's why Alina is right to characterize it in the way she did. You can see the beginning of an answer crystallizing, but it's going to take government doing its part to lean on the social media companies, to encourage and support the private the NGOs who can expose disinformation faster than government bureaucrats, to work with the Europeans to get common standards so we have maximum leverage on the social media companies to uh, you know, fly right and stop playing games. All of these things are doable. We are not living up to the potential on defense. And the Russians, other actors, Chinese, Iranians, are going to keep improving their game. So we better get our act together. Let's talk about offense then. Part of your argument is that democracies can't only defend against disinformation. They need to think about going on offense as well. What do you mean by offense and why, in your view, isn't defense enough? Well, this Alina had the insight, and I applaud her for it, to focus on offense as a way of getting us to think about taking the fight to the bad guys, meaning the Russian, Putin's government, but then refining our tools so we can do it potentially with other bad guys. And defense isn't enough because if you're always on defense, you are limiting the number of hits you take, but you're allowing the purveyor of disinformation to go after you without penalty. All you do is block the blows. And there are ways to go after them. And the U.S. government has begun to do it in some areas and failed miserably or even gone backwards in other areas. Okay, so there are three pillars of offense. Cyber tools to identify and disrupt disinformation operations. This is already happening. U.S. Cyber Command is doing it. It's highly classified but we know they're doing it because they leak it and they do it on purpose and they're right to do it. They want it known. I can get into some of the things they're doing, but that's one, cyber attack. A second is sanctions and other financial tools against disinformation actors. The Obama administration barely did this at the very end of 2016 and they didn't do it very well. I was part of that process. I know what was wrong. The Trump administration did more. They did more partly because the people who do sanctions were able to operate under the radar, but they didn't do enough. There's a lot more that could be done in sanctions and other financial tools, but I'll give the Trump people credit. They managed to do something. In the, the third and the, the most powerful in the long run is support for free media inside Russia. If they are hitting us with disinformation, do not, do not 
use disinformation on our own. We're a democratic country. We're no good at disinformation. We shouldn't use it. Just full stop. Don't do it. But if you really want to hurt them in a way that is consistent with our democratic values, support free media. Increase support for independent journalists, activists, independent investigators in Russian, inside and outside Russia. We used to do this pretty well during the Cold War. It was one of the the most effective programs, partly, I suspect, because it was consistent with our values, as opposed to otherwise. Only the Trump administration in the last several months has been, I'm shocked to say this, tearing down U.S. government support for independent media by acting in an authoritarian way, imposing partisan controls on the the crown jewels of U.S. government broadcasting, like Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty, Radio Free Asia. It's shocking to me. Yes, one of the many shocking things that's been going on in the Trump administration recently. But this has been going backwards. The Biden administration has an opportunity to pull back U.S. government broadcasting and support for independent journalism inside Russia, and not just Russia. Our paper looks at this with respect to China and other countries. The United States is really good at this kind of thing. We, in the Cold War, our most effective programs included support for free media broadcasting into communist countries, into the Soviet Union, and support starting in the 1980s for some of the underground journalists, especially in Poland because of solidarity. We got pretty good at this. It wasn't just government. It was a lot of private actors. It was a lot of NGOs. But this gets at the purveyors of disinformation in a particularly apt way. You hit us with lies. We will hit you with the truth. It is consistent with our values and the power will build over time. The thought of the Trump administration using free journalism at all has a rather odd ring since President Trump himself has no regard for freedom of the press. In fact, he hates the media, using the Stalinist term, enemy of the people, to describe independent journalists. Take that away. In a Biden administration, this will be a powerful tool. It's not going to solve disinformation tomorrow. It, it, it will be slow to yield measurable results, but it will have the greatest impact over time if we apply it with creativity and determination. Yeah, just to add in a little bit there, I think uh, Dan did a great job outlining the offense piece, but I think to go back to your earlier question, Quinta, you know, why, why the offense, right? And I think, as we've talked about in this podcast before, now we've gotten pretty good at some things. But even when everything that we've been preparing for, funding, developing research skills are at works, the best that we can do is you know, take down the social media platforms and attribute a relatively small, say, disinformation or inauthentic coordinated behavior network. And that's just not enough at the end of the day. And what we wanted to say is we have to stop this kind of whack-a-mole approach. 
But the only way to do that is to get off the back foot, to stop being reactive to whatever they throw at us, and to be actually proactive and think about what deterrence in the disinformation, foreign disinformation space could look like. And that's why we suggest all of these remedies that are not symmetric. You know, it's not like, well, they, they hit us with this, we do the same thing to them. No, it's really about establishing uh, sort of rules of the road so that the punishment, shall we choose to use it, is also severe enough that other state actors, not just Russia, China, obviously, we had to write a paper that was at least 50% focused on China, given the activities that Beijing has undertaken in the information environment since uh, the COVID pandemic began. And the tools we have for dealing with these countries are not dissimilar, but they do have to be curated to the specific adversary. And the evolution of tactics, the ability of countries to work through proxy actors to do obfuscate detection, to work with local actors, to do a better job of basically hiding themselves in the noise. The, that has proceeded at such a rapid pace, not to mention technological advancements of all kinds. And we just really haven't kept up in any real way. And so we've lost a lot of time here in the U.S., and that was also why, unlike some of our other work, this paper really focuses on the United States, because to us, um, seeing where other countries are and have been, where social media companies have been, the, the weakest link right now in this whole battle against state-sponsored disinformation is the U.S. government. You have a, a really interesting note right before the section of the paper where you launch into those three pillars, which I, I want to ask you about. Before you go into detail there, you write, democracies should not attempt their own version of disinformation. Doing so would undermine the values that democracies seek to defend, creating a moral equivalence. Besides, if the history of the Cold War is any guide, democracies are no good at disinformation. So I want to ask, what do you mean by that? And is it fair to say that democracies because they need to hold true to their principles in order to continue being democracies are sort of inherently limited in their ability to fight back against disinformation in a way that an authoritarian state might not be? This is a really interesting question you've raised. And I thought about that footnote for a long time. But I came to the conclusion, I'll stand by it, I came to that conclusion because I'm old enough to have been active as a U.S. diplomat in the last decade or so of the Cold War. And I studied the Cold War history. And one of the things we learned is that when we tried to be just like them, we failed. We thought that we, there was this school of thought during the Cold War that we have to fight fire with fire. The communists are tough. We have to be even tougher. That didn't usually work out. We won the Cold War, not by nefarious propaganda campaigns, but we won it by being true to our own values. And I know that sounds terribly naive, except that it worked, in fact. How did we win the Cold War? Well, we supported democratic dissident movements that we didn't create. The Soviets said we created them. They were all CIA operatives. They weren't. That's why they worked, because they were authentic. They were real. 
And when we helped them, like solidarity in the 1980s, we were truest to our own values and we were effective. So if you think about that, the United States is really going it is really good at supporting independent investigative journalism. It's sort of what we do, it's in our culture. We're pretty good at that kind of thing. But propaganda, lies, I mean, you know, I don't mean to be too topical, but the Trump the Trump White House has launched a disinformation campaign to convince Americans that the election was stolen. And although uh, a lot of partisans have been convinced, in fact, it's risible. In a few weeks, it's turned into a national joke. And this is the White House at the direction of the president. We're not good at disinformation. We're not good at lying. It doesn't come naturally. And it seems to be un-American. It is un-American. And so what Alina was saying earlier is absolutely right. We don't have to be symmetric. We don't have to become them in order to fight them. Don't become bad versions of them, of authoritarians. Become better versions of us, pro-democracy people. Now, that doesn't mean that it's, it's going to be all sweetness and, and light. No, the, our paper talks about, as you see, it talks about cyber attack, which is, you know, that takes place in the shadows. But it's not lying. It's not propaganda. It's not deceit of that kind. No, I think we shouldn't do it. I feel, I feel strongly about this. Be true to our own values, especially now that, that President Trump has challenged basic American values. A Biden administration, I think, will want to act in a way consistent with how we think of ourselves as our best selves. I think they'll feel pretty strongly about that. And I agree. Now that we have that on the table, let's walk through those three overarching suggestions that you set out about how democracies should think about offense. Uh, So starting from the beginning, there's cyber offense. I think that the most prominent example of this that is in the public record so far is probably U.S. Cyber Command's uh, 2018 action knocking the Internet Research Agency in St. Petersburg offline during the 2018 midterm elections, which was reported in the Washington Post. Is that the kind of thing that you have in mind here when you're talking about cyber as a means of offense? That's one of them, and it's at the harder end. If you talk to the cyber people themselves, and some of them will talk, they have four levels of activity. They use military, sort of quasi-military terminology, but it's cyber command, and these are military officers. Hunt which means seeking out the adversary, surveil, which means probing the foreign disinformation systems to identify the bad actors and the details of the software they use, expose, which means releasing the details of disinformation operations, including the methods, the campaigns, and maybe personnel. And then finally is disable, which is what you said, and it's what it sounds like, go after them. All four levels are different. Disable is the most aggressive. You need to be careful about that. But hunt and surveil 
and expose, that's a useful tool because it can be exposed without the fingerprints of the U.S. government. You figure out ways to let civil society activists know what's going on. And by the way, sometimes they'll be better at it in, in cyber command. Expose it. Get it known. Get it known to the allies. Get it known to civil society. So we know who's doing what everybody knows um, about the St. Petersburg troll farm. Public knowledge. Okay, so what else? who else is out there? Who are the other bad actors? Expose them so that anybody who works with them is radioactive, so to speak. That is, it becomes hard to work with these people, hard to have contact with them. It becomes like RT, the Russian state propaganda system. If you do an RT interview, you're automatically suspect. A few years ago, that wasn't true. Now it is. There's a stigma attached. This is good. There ought to be stigmas attached to the really bad actors. So hunt, surveil, expose, and disable. And be careful about the disabling part. I mean, that needs to be careful. And I think that I have no reason to believe that Cyber Command was anything but careful. So I'm, I think their work has been good. But I think there's a lot more that we could do in the realm of sharing information. I think the Biden administration will build on those habits. Now, that's the cyber side. There's more to talk about. Yeah, and to chime in on the cyber piece, you know, I think the reason we looked at the current known, at least unclassified cyber doctrine that has been shared out there is because a lot of it is applicable to dis disrupting disinformation networks. And it really does come down to offense being seen as a deterrence, as proactive deterrence. And you know, what if we could have identified the IRA before it did all the damage that it did? What if we could have done a better job limiting the activities of the GRU unit that was involved in the uh, hack and leak operation around the U.S. election and, and other events and other elections as well? It's really about identifying potential threats because they, before they become real threats and that to our mind is something that should be doable in the disinformation space. Of course, state-sponsored disinformation lends itself to that more easily than other kinds. And I think that's why we need to be careful, but much more open to the notion of having offensive cyber capabilities when it comes to not just cyber network intrusions and information theft and things of that nature, but also when it comes to disinformation operations. Because I think in many ways we've been limited in thinking of cyber as something that only has to do with hacking networks. Um, and we need to have a much more expansive view of cyber as something that is something that happens in the digital domain, period. And I think there is growing desire and a growing understanding that the term cyber itself has been sort of limiting because as everything has become digitized, as everything is in the cyber domain, what are we really talking about here? And so that's why a lot of the recommendations we have is basically about taking the doctrine that we already have and applying it to information operations. 
Let's talk about the second bucket, which is sanctions. Ambassador Freed, you mentioned at the beginning that uh, your your view is that the Obama administration, that the use of sanctions to respond to Russian interference in the 2016 election was insufficient. I'd love to hear you talk more about that. Oh, man. Well, I was at the time the State Department sanctions coordinator. And in the late summer of 2016, my colleague, Tori Newland, who was Assistant Secretary of State for Europe, and I realized sort of what the Russians were up to, not in the degree of knowledge we have now, but we knew. And the Obama White House was reluctant to take strong steps. They were not organized for it. And partly they didn't want to seem be seen as doing anything on the election lest they be accused of putting their thumb on the scale. But there was a weird hesitation and a lot of dissension within the administration because there were some of us, Tori and myself and some others, that were pushing for more. By the time they got around to actually doing it, it was too late. The first sanctions we put into effect in response to Russian cyber activities was in late December 2016, with an executive order which was limited. This was just a, this was an enormously frustrating operation. We managed to sanction Yevgeny Prigozhin, who was the funder of the IRA, the, the internet troll farm. You know, we knew what he was doing, but we got him actually because of his funding of Russian operations related to the invasion of Ukraine. Uh, he does, a, he funnels a lot of bad Kremlin money for bad purposes. So we got him for that, but we didn't get him for disinformation. The Trump administration actually went further than Obama did. Credit to them, or at least to the professionals who managed to get a new executive order through, which they did partly to avoid legislation. So they did a pretty good job and they hit um, some individuals associated with the IRA. This was good, but there is a lot more we should do. One, we should do more sanctions against individuals, organizations, and their funders who are engaged in disinformation. And, you know, get the names, do the research, work with Cyber Command and go after them. Secondly, there were bills introduced in Congress which would impose much greater levels of sanctions, not just on purveyors of information, but against Russian financial targets generally, if they go after our elections or our infrastructure in major ways. It's good to have contingency sanctions like that. That legislation would have to be introduced, but we should think about it in a serious way. Third, this is not sanctions, and it is not symmetrical. But if we are mad enough about Russian interference in our elections or European elections, then we ought to start planning targeting against Putin's financial elite and where they keep their money in offshore accounts. They want to tear down the West, but they trust the West's banking system more than than their own. They use the rule of law in the West that they hate and want to destroy as protection for their own ill-gotten gains. We ought to be going after them. They mess with our core institutions 
we ought to mess with Putin's kleptocracy. There are ways to do this. And quite apart from retaliation or deterrence, we ought to be looking at ways to apply financial transparency to stop flows of dirty Russian money anyway. And if we can use counter disinformation as a policy tool to do the right thing that is right for even other purposes, I'm fine with that too. So if you unpack it, you've got, you've got sanctions, you've got sectoral sanctions against larger targets, and you've got broader financial tools against the corrupt system. That's a lot of tools. The last portion of your recommendations, as we've discussed, focuses on a need to support a free press in both Russia and China. And you've suggested that this may be the sort of the most powerful tool in the arsenal. I'd love to hear you talk a little bit more about what that would look like in practice and also how we would know if that effort is successful. You write in the paper that uh, the United States believed for a long time during the Cold War that its efforts to fund the free press in the Soviet Union and behind the Iron Curtain were unsuccessful, even though you argued that they actually were quite useful. So how would we know if this strategy was working? Oh, uh, as an old bureaucrat, I am aware that there is a mismatch between the budget process with the need to show metrics and justify your program and the reality that programs like this don't bring results in equal increments. For years and years, it looked like we were achieving nothing. And then all of a sudden, we looked like geniuses. Well, which was it? The fact is, in reality, sometimes you don't get measurable metrics of success until they all come at once. And so you got to be comfortable with what you're doing. There are some metrics. Are, are your programs getting through? Are people, uh, are the people you help reaching an audience? I mean, there, there are all kinds of way to, ways to test it. But you can't increase the budget for support for Russian language free media and then expect that Putin will throw up his hands and say, okay, I surrender, I'm going to organize free elections. It's not going to work that way. In a place like Russia, if you support free media consistently, steadily over time, the impact can grow. And we know that the internet in Russia remains a space of freedom, even though it is contested. And I'm not an expert at all on China, but I'm told that even in China, support for journalists is possible and support for Chinese language journalism outside China is important. And we have a whole U.S. government system which can do this. The Trump administration fired its own appointees to Radio Free Europe and Radio Free Asia. And that's just stunning to me. But that means that, you know, Biden can build back better. I think this is the most interesting part of the paper in some ways, because uh, what we learned doing research for this is that often 
you know, support for quote unquote independent media in authoritarian or pseudo authoritarian regimes is seen by U.S. agencies that do this kind of work as something different than counter disinformation efforts. So you kind of have two different uh, funding mechanisms even for counter disinfo and then independent media support. And we thought, like, this doesn't make any sense. Having a vibrant independent media space is a counter disinformation strategy, actually. And they're one and the same. They should be seen as one and the same. But I also think this is where we delve a little bit away from offense and much more into long-term resilience. But to go to Dan's point about how do we know if this worked and which one is that real idiots are wasting money or are we all geniuses when it all works out? Well, this is one of the few times where I'd like to bring back my, my experience growing up in the Soviet Union to just make it clear that it did work. You know, we got our information not from the Soviet news agencies, information that we trusted anyways. So we got it from, you know, Radio Radio Saboda, which is RFIRA, Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty now. Uh, we got it from the BBC Russian service. And it was all, you know, trying to catch the waves, right? And only some people's radios would catch the waves because you had to position a certain place. So that was the information we trusted. We didn't trust the information that we got from our televisions, from state-sponsored outlets. Now, obviously, the situation has changed a lot, but I think we have a huge advantage here as democracies. And we've tended to see now the internet space, the openness of the online space as a vulnerability that's being exploited. You know, we talk about this a lot, and the Russians exploited social media platforms and the openness of the public space online. You know, the Chinese are filtering and blocking information before it even gets to Chinese citizens um, at home. So they're using all these technologies to try to limit information, control information. But I think we need to flip that over and we need to see the digital domain, the democratic digital domain as an asset. And we need to see our ability to communicate, to message, not on radios, but online as a huge asset. It's much cheaper, it can be much faster to set up, and it can be much more effective in reaching people. And I just want to make it clear that we're not naive in the paper. We understand that Russia and China are very different information markets. And getting into China in any way is incredibly difficult. It's much more difficult than getting information into Russia or supporting independent media in Russia. So when we lay out a strategy where we start to contest Chinese information influence across the world, but specifically in the areas where China has the most strategic interest. That's in Taiwan, that's in Hong Kong, and in many ways, Taiwan, Hong Kong, perhaps Tibet, other places where the the Chinese uh, Communist Party has seized as part of its natural sphere of influence as part of China, these are the areas that we need to be pushing. Because in many ways, these are the areas that are like Ukraine for Russia, right? Um, And so we have a lot that we can do in terms of supporting uh, Mandarin language programs, um, supporting Mandarin language independent media, first and foremost, in these regions, just as we have and continue to support Russian language independent media. So even though Russia and China are very different, 
I th there are many tools and many ways in which strategically and without a huge cost, much lesser cost than starting a television station, right? That we can reach populations, that we provide information, that we can work through local partners to help, you know, at least give some lifelines to very struggling uh, independent media outlets and individuals who are trying to report out accurate information. So that's really what I, th that piece of the strategy is about. It's recognizing the limitations, but also understanding that, you know, counter disinformation and an independent media space are one in the same. Um, and we can't really separate those two as we have been. We talked at the beginning about the podcast about the role of domestic disinformation in all of this. And I wanted to close out by circling back to that. Obviously, as you have discussed, there's been sort of more and more attention within the, this field of the problem of bad information that's homegrown, so to speak, within the United States. Um, and there are also some interesting overlaps between bad information that's coming in from abroad and information that's circulating within the United States. So how should we think about this sort of blurry space between foreign and domestic disinformation, given that, as you say, there are different sets of tools to use uh, to address both threats? Is it are we going to have to continue to segregate them in our minds because the tools are different or do we need to understand that overlap as we're conceptualizing how to respond? We absolutely have to understand the overlap. You know, a lot of the things we talk about in this paper, obviously we're talking about primarily China and, and Russia, but as we were writing this paper, you know, as we talk about this podcast, the very stark reality of the bigger problem being domestic or false information, disinformation, a lot of that coming directly from the White House. I mean, we have a, kind of a fragmented society where people literally are living in different realities in the United States. And it's not just in the United States, but obviously we experience this so starkly here because uh, the president has been uh, a proponent of using the strategy for his own political gains. I think it's going to go a long way to have a White House that is not the purveyor of false information. That bully pulpit that the president has is huge. And when it's misused, we see the consequences of that. You know, we're experiencing those consequences still, you know, as we record this conversation. So on the domestic side, I think this is really about a much longer term set of policies that circle around and center on education, the center on digital literacy. And you know, European governments have been playing around with this, and we still don't fully know how effective this will be in the long term. You know, but clearly there we have a serious problem when uh, a growing number of Americans, a growing number of people living in democracies don't know what facts are, don't believe in facts, and live in a really alt in, in an alternative reality uh, de facto. And so I think changing the administration will go a long way. Having a an approach that is coordinated across U.S. government agencies including domestic agencies like DHS, Department of Education, and otherwise. And then having perhaps conversations that are quite serious between the 
federal agencies, state level agencies, and local agencies, so municipalities. And this is something that Sweden has done incredibly well, where they've established these kind of communication networks uh, from the very, very local level all the way up to, to the national level uh, to be able to share information about best practices when it comes to this issue. But, you know, to be honest, I remain right now, you know, pretty cynical about that because, you know, just think about what we're going through in our country right now where we have Republicans and Democrats who don't even see the election outcome in the same way. Um, and certainly President Trump, who is not a president, is not going to disappear and go off into the darkness and no longer use his incredible uh, Twitter following. Um, so he'll still be around. And so I think there's going to be a huge challenge. And I think it's, you know, hopefully, as Dan said at the beginning of the podcast, over time we'll grow more sophisticated and we will have generations that will have a better critical lens. But I think right now it's really hard to see the light at the end of the tunnel. One of the lessons of democracy is that it tends to prevail in the end, but the damage in the meantime can be big. It doesn't do to say democracy will prevail in the end if the time between now and then is punctuated by authoritarian interludes. So that's serious. So Alina's right. The reason I am still optimistic is because history gives us plenty of examples of societies being flattened by new forms of information technology, which are first exploited by the purveyors of disinformation. And only then, only later, do people learn how to deal with it. I mean, the printing press, 15th century, right? The Gutenberg Bible comes out, but so do a lot of inflammatory religious tracts, which help feed the religious wars. Societies learn how to deal with that stuff, but look how many dead people, you know, early disinformation was responsible for. Our recommendations are focused on foreign source disinformation. Some of those lessons will be transferable to domestic disinformation. Not all of them, but the habits of dealing with disinformation will grow. People will learn slowly, bit by bit. All we can do, all public policy can do, is work to reduce the damage and foreshorten the time, the learning curve. That's not easy. And it's frustrating because it's imperfect solutions, but the solutions are always imperfect. But you add up enough imperfect solutions and it, it's enough. Abraham Lincoln used to quote his Secretary of State, William Seward, saying that the virtue of the Republic was just enough to save it. Just barely sometimes, but sufficient, but sufficient. Lincoln liked that. The virtue of the Republic being sufficient, barely, to save it. And I think that's where we'll end up again. All right, let's leave it there. Alina, Ambassador Fried, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having us. It's an important topic and appreciate your interest. You've been listening to The Arbiters of Truth, the Lawfare Podcast's miniseries on disinformation. You can find past episodes in the Lawfare Podcast feed 
and we'll be back for another episode next Thursday. The Lawfare Podcast is produced in cooperation with the Brookings Institution. Our music is performed by Sophia Yan. Our audio engineer is Zachary Frank, and our producer is Jen Pache Howell. Please rate and review the Lawfare Podcast on whatever app you use. And thanks for listening.